I don't know how many <laughs> movies and shows I've watched where you're watching a character and you see they like have some sort of problem. Like the, the best problem I could think of is like in a zombie show or something. Like if somebody gets bit by the zombie, it's like okay, now they're infected, and they should really be telling somebody about this. Like I have this problem. I'm gonna get sick. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna come back as a zombie and eat you all. And they just keep it to themselves. Like I can handle this. I gotta take care of this. I don't want to tell anybody that. Or you maybe see other shows where people. Um, are having this issue, and you're like, P just please tell somebody, you know, tell your superior, tell this other person, and they can help you, and we're just like, please ask somebody else for help. Um, or, I mean, the, the old stereotypical thing of like how guys hate to ask for directions. I've never really totally found that to be true for me, because I always loved asking my friends, I have friends like who love to research, and so I would always ask, they'd like research the best computers, and I'd be like, okay, I'll just buy that one. Or they'd research the best whatever, and I'd be like, okay, I'll just buy that one. So it always, I was always fine with that. Um, and Katie loves researching too, so it helps me. But you know that age-old thing about like, well, guys never ask for directions. It's not till they're lost, you know, up in Alaska before they're like, I think we might have taken the wrong turn to get to, I was gonna say Hawaii, but that doesn't make sense. But then maybe that's <laughs> even better, like the wrong turn to get to Hawaii, we're in Alaska now. But um, what I wanna just brainstorm a bit, we don't have the handy whiteboard, unfortunately, I forgot it. But we can have a whiteboard in our brains. Um, but why don't we ask for help when we know that we need it? What keeps us from asking for help when we're like, man, I need somebody, but what keeps us from asking? Pride. Pride, yeah. Pride. Fear. Fear. Oh, there, I was like, where'd that voice come from? <laughs> right there. Fear. Behind the... Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> Pride, fear, yeah. What are we afraid of? Anybody, anybody can answer that. What are we afraid of happening if we ask for help? It looks stupid. Look stupid, yeah. Or needy, like, yeah, needy. Needy. I needed somebody. Yeah. I shouldn't need so, that. Like, I guess not, not very independent or responsible. Mm -hmm. Independent, responsible at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> might be rejected. They might reject you. Yeah, you could ask for it, and like, no, you have to figure this out. Yeah. Fear of punishment. Oh. You did something wrong. You know? Okay. Yeah. I, I messed this up. I need help. Yeah, so you might try to be like, I just got to fix this. I broke a window in the garage, so I'm going to have to fix this myself and hope Dad doesn't <laughs> find out. <laughs> yeah. You know, the reasons we might not ask for help, what keeps us from asking for help when we know we need it? It might feel like we're so close to figuring it out. Mm. There's one more thing and we'll get it. We won't need to ask. Yeah, I just tried more, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fear of judgment. Yeah, like, oh, I'm a little better than you because I have to help you, yeah. Look down on you. We might not know how. Well, how, yeah, how to ask for help. I don't know who to ask. I don't know what to say. I don't know what would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's lots of reasons that we might be like, man, I need help. And we, for some, there's things that keep us from asking for it. Well, this evening we're wrapping up the part of Genesis that focuses on uh, Jacob's life. Um, really, if you remember the title for this part of Genesis, it was about Isaac. It's like, here's what becomes of Isaac's family, and Isaac's family is Jacob and Esau, his son. So there's a big focus on Jacob, um, but then also his conflict with Esau. And we're wrapping that up, and after tonight, we're going to take a little break from Genesis, uh, and then we're going to finish the final part um, later next year. And this series is called Beginning the Journey Home, because we learned in the opening chapters that God intended humanity's home to be with him, to be dwelling in his presence under his care, you know, if you're in somebody's home, you're under their protection, under their care, under their guidance and their instruction and provision. 
Um, and God created this good world. He desired to dwell in it with humanity, to walk with us, to guide us, protect us, care for us. And at the same time, we're made in his image. And his intention was that we would reflect what he is like, both to his creation and to one another. Everything that's true of God, um, or almost everything that's true of God, we weren't supposed to be all-powerful or all-knowing or all-present everywhere. Um, but there's many attributes of God, his goodness, um, his creativeness, uh, his, his justice, his righteousness. We're supposed to reflect all these things to one another. Most importantly, you could kind of sum it all up under love. We're supposed to reflect God's love to one another, to his creation. And his desire, if you want to use a New Testament word, is that we would be ambassadors of his kingdom on earth, showing and telling um, what he is like. But in Genesis 3, our home with God was the first broken home in human history, because Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent, um, that, hey, you you would maybe be better off uh, in, in charge. Like, God, he's not really that good, and actually disobeying him isn't really going to be as bad as he says it's going to be. And so, you know, what are you doing still anchored to this guy? And so they decided, well, we're not satisfied with being ambassadors for God. We actually would rather be the king ourselves, ambassadors, go on the behalf of kings or behalf of nations, on the behalf of other authorities, and like, you know what? We don't want to be these like go-between people. We actually want to be in authority. And so they believe the serpent's lie, they disobey God, they sin, they put themselves on the thrones of their lives instead of God. And from this point forward, we're not able to live in God's presence. Home was disrupted. Home was broken. Home was corrupted. And Adam and Eve and every human after them, including us, went into this exile um, from home, from God's presence. But that, thankfully, is not where the story ends because God and his grace, this whole book is about how he initiates this plan to bring humanity back home to his presence. God chose a man, Abraham, and said, I want to bless you so you'll be a blessing to other people. He's going to do something in Abraham's life and in the family of Abraham and what he's doing in their life is going to be drawing other people back home, bringing people back home to God and God's desire um, is to, and we're all um, products of that desire of Abraham being blessed to bring people back home to God all each of us that says yes I believe in Jesus I'm saved I have a relationship with God that was part of God's plan that's been trickled down you know through all these um, thousands thousands of, year, of years and God's goal is to restore the blessing of his presence to humanity and Genesis is about the beginning of that journey home to God just the first book of the Bible, and reached this climax in Jesus, so it unfolds for a long time. And at the same time, it's humanity's journey back home to God in Genesis, but then at the same time, these individual humans, that God's working in their life, it's also their journey back home to God. Before God can use them to be a blessing to others, to bring others back home, they have to go through this journey where they come back home to God. And Abraham had to learn to walk with God by trusting him and loving him. And we've been following Jacob's journey back home to God as well. In this passage this evening, it's like a lot of it really isn't covering anything new. It's a lot of the stuff God said already. Um, and so it's not very surprising. And it's this kind of conclusion to Jacob's journey home to God. And Abraham's journey, um, if you remember way back with Abraham, his big struggle was, he's like, God, I don't have any kids. I'm old, I don't have any kids, this is a big issue, I don't have anybody to be an heir to all the stuff I own, and then God's like, you know what, I'm going to give you a, a child, and when he finally does, his test was, will he see God as most valuable, Abraham had to learn that God was the most valuable thing in his life, we were talking about, like God is the greatest gift, he's even greater gift than this child 
that you've given me. And Abraham had to learn, does he value God's gifts more than he values God himself? And for Jacob, his journey is a bit different. Uh, Maybe there's multiple questions that we could ask for Jacob. But the main question for Jacob isn't about seeing God as most valuable, um, but God as most powerful. And in Jacob's eyes, who is most powerful? Is it him or is it God? As we finish Jacob's spiritual journey, the big question we'll answer this evening is, how do selfish people become a blessing to the world? How do selfish people become a blessing to the world? And this answer, or this question is relevant for all of us because we all uh, are selfish. And hopefully, if we were following Jesus, we'd become less selfish. But selfishness means we see ourselves, our desires, our wants, our needs at the center of things. That's the most important thing. You know, how often do we spend our whole lives thinking about how can I... you know, satisfy that person's needs. How can I care for that person? How can I give that person what they want? And even if you know our mindset is that, a lot of times there's always t- moments and maybe weeks or days or hours or years where we're like, you know, I pretty much lived for myself today. Like that person didn't do what I wanted. I got mad. And you know, we so we all have this selfishness in us that Jesus is rooting out of us. And before we come to Jesus, we you know it's totally ruling over us. Um, so how do selfish people become a blessing to the world? And so we'll walk through Genesis chapter 35 and then answer that big question. When we met Jacob, we saw a man consumed by his own selfish desires. He was willing to do whatever it takes, hurt whoever um, he needs to, to get what he wants. He wants things from people. He deceives, he tricks, he cheats, he lies. He takes advantage of them in their moments of weakness. And because of this, his brother wanted to kill him. And then he has to go stay with his uncle for 20 years while his brother cools down. And as he's about to leave the land of Canaan, where his family lives, um, that God promised to give to his family, they're just wanderers in it now, God meets him at this place that Jacob then names Bethel. And God promised to him, uh, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to watch over you, I'm going to bring you back to this land. And then Jacob makes this vow, okay God, if you do that, I'll make you my God. It's not the greatest way to respond to him, the God of the universe, like, hey, if you... You know, come through for me, then I'll worship you. It's not the, you know, the best response, but God is faithful, does what he promises him, um, and then Jacob sees that, and it changes him. He sees, like, wow, God has been with me. He's been faithful. He's helped me. And now he's returned to his land after 20 years with his uncle Laban, and God says, it's time to make good on that vow that you made when you left. And look at verse 1, chapter 35, what um, God says to him. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God's calling him. It's time to come back to Bethel. That's where I met you when you left. It's time to come back uh, and fulfill your vow. And Jacob obeys immediately. He tells everybody in his household, wives and children and servants and the women and children um, that his sons just took from the city of Shechem when they pillaged it. They took captive. All these people, he tells them, put away all your foreign gods Get rid of your idols, purify of yourselves, and change your garments. And Jacob's making good on his vow because he said, if you do this for me, God, I'm going to make you my God. And so he's like, all these little foreign gods, all these little, in those days there'd be like these little statues that people would be like, I'm going to worship this, I'm going to ask it for things, I'm going to try to give it sacrifices and stuff. He says, get rid of all this stuff. We're going to have one God. Get rid of all these little statues that represent um, these foreign gods and these fake gods. Get rid of them. Um, we're going to go and worship the Lord. And so they're preparing for this. And um, 
Jacob's leading his household and everybody with him in it. And Jacob is currently located at a place called Shechem, which is sort of like, too bad I don't have my whiteboard, but I'll use my hand. We'll pretend this is Israel, not Wisconsin. (laughs) So uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Shechem's like here. And God's saying, come down here. Bethel's like somewhere here. This is the Dead Sea, southern border of Israel. So basically he has to do this travel sort of through the middle um, of Israel. And there's a risk in doing this because in the last chapter, Jacob's sons killed all the men, um, all the uh, husbands in the city of Shechem to avenge their sister. And does anybody remember what was Jacob worried about after this at the end of the last chapter? Does anybody remember what Jacob was worried about? That the nations would attack him and he would be vulnerable, that they would be disgusted by what he did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like, my sons just did this horrible thing, killed all these people in this city. Now the other people in this land, they're going to be like, well, we got to go take this guy out. He just killed our people. And so Jacob's nervous about this. And now God is asking him, okay, you know, what would be the best thing to do? you got to get out of here, Jacob. God says, no, I want you to travel down through the land, you know, past all these people's cities, and to go down to Bethel to worship me. At the end of his life in Genesis 49, Nick and I didn't even discuss this, um, but Jacob calls God his shepherd. In Psalm 23, uh, praise to God as our shepherd, and it holds on to this truth that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. God is our shepherd. But then we see in this passage, it's not only that God walks with us when they're in the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes God actually sends us through the valley of the shadow of death, and he still promises to be with us. And he's telling Jacob, I want you to go down through, you know, in the shadow of all these people that you think are going to kill you for what your sons did. I want you to go walk through them. And have you ever felt like God is calling you to walk down a road that you would didn't want to go down. Like, if I did that, I'd be so vulnerable. If I did that, it'd be so risky. If I did that, it'd be so uncomfortable. If I did that, I could be um, in danger of being rejected or ridiculed or made fun of or somebody misunderstanding me. Have you ever felt like God was asking you to do something that would make you uh, in a completely vulnerable situation and it would force you to trust him? In chapter 34 was this dark spot in the history of Jacob's family, but God is using it so Jacob can have this opportunity to learn to trust God. And Jacob goes, and we learn that in verse 5, it says this. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob doesn't have to do anything to protect himself against these people. God does it all. And Jacob did have to obey in order to experience God's power. If he would have just stayed there, or if he would have just left um, and not done what God said, he wouldn't have been able to experience God's power at keeping him safe here. He couldn't remain where he was if he wanted to see God at work. The same is true of us, because God calls us out of what is comfortable and out of where we feel in control. And if we only do what is within our power, we shouldn't expect to experience God's power because there's no need for it. And Jacob, if he would have just done what was within his power, which would be, I'm going to make my own scheme to get out of this, or to, I'm going to go north or go back east or whatever to get away from these cities, he wouldn't have experienced God working on his behalf in this situation. 
And when Jacob, he goes to Bethel, and when he arrives there, he builds, builds an altar to worship God, just as God told him. And it was at Bethel that God first appeared to him and made him these promises to be with him. And it's here again that God appears to Jacob. And so let's look at what God says to him in verse 10. Just reread the first part of what he says in verse 10. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. In our Gospel Fluency group this week, Nick pointed out that Jacob needs to know his identity before he's sent on a mission. Because God's about to tell him, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, but first he needs to know his identity before he's sent on that mission. God wants to use Jacob and his family to bless the world with his presence, but Jacob needs to know who he is in relation to God before he's ready to go out on this mission. And the name Israel was given to him because he, God says, you've striven with God and men, and you, you prevailed. But for Jacob, this name, it was just a couple weeks ago we talked about it, it was given at a critical moment when he knew full well that his strength, his ability, his might, his capability, his plans were not the reason that he prevailed with God or with other people. Because by that point in his life, he had realized God has been with me. And the only reason Laban didn't take everything from me is because God was with me and he was on my side. And then when he wrestles with God in the night, he's like, I should be dead seeing God face to face. And yet, I've been delivered. And then when he sees Esau, um, he had prayed, Esau's coming with foreign men. God, please deliver me from, from death with Esau. And when Esau comes, he's expecting, okay, Esau's going to be totally mad. And then Esau just embraces him in love. And then he realizes all of this, I haven't prevailed in any of these situations because of what I've done. It's because God has been with me, um, and these other people have shown me grace, and they've allowed me to live. And that's what makes what God says in next in verse 11 so meaningful. Um, and so look at verse 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give to you, and I'll give the land to your offspring after you. And God, I found it interesting as we've gone through Genesis to just see, like, what are these different names that God uses to describe himself? Or what are the different ways? We talked about this with Abraham. Like, what are all the different ways God revealed himself to Abraham? Like, I am the God of this, I am the God of that. Or that the characters said something that was true about God. And then this is forming how they're interacting with them and how they're living their lives. But God introduces himself here as, I am God Almighty, meaning he is all-powerful, all strength belongs to him, all might belongs to him, nothing is beyond his doing. And the old Jacob saw himself, himself as Almighty. What he wanted, he got it by his own planning and scheming. But then we saw what that brought to his life. Um, he had to run from his brother um, because what's... Him living for himself, him living as if he's in control and he's almighty and I can get whatever I want. Um, it just brings pain and hurt to his family. Bring, makes him have to go on the run and run away from his own house, his own brother. And when he had to run from Esau, because of his schemes, he found himself vulnerable and out of his comfort zone. And then God met him at Bethel. And in that moment, in the next 20 years, he forms him to this man who no longer sees himself as, J as Jacob Almighty. But as a man dependent on God, I know there's movies 
Evan Almighty, Bruce Almighty. Not talking about that, but Jacob seeing himself, he's like, I'm Jacob Almighty. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm, gonna, I'm in control, and I'm going to use my plans and schemes to just bring wealth and resources to me. And this scene that we're reading here is like this ceremony, making his new name official and officially transferring the blessing that, and promises that God has said, I'm giving this to your family. It's officially transferring it over to Jacob. Where Jacob's spiritual journey started is where God is making all this happen. God, or Jacob now knows, I'm dependent on God's grace. I'm now dependent on God's might. I'm dependent on God's power, not mine. Jacob knows he's not the source of blessing, but God is. And, and Jacob knows, I need God in my life. The God who, as he says earlier, this is the God who has uh, answered me in the day of my distress, has been with me wherever I have gone. This is how God is seeing Jacob now. This is, this is how Jacob is seeing God now. This is the God who rescues me, who saves me, who helps me, who redeems me, who pulls me up out of the pit and out of my places of distress, and he sets me on solid ground, and he, and he helps me when I need it. And Jacob no longer sees himself as the most important or most powerful in his life. But, and because of that, now he's able to be a blessing. Now he's able to be sent on a mission. Now that he knows who he is, his identity in relation to God, now he can go on God's mission. The old Jacob is gone, and the new has come. And before any of us can be used by God, he must restore us to right relationship with him. When we come to Jesus, the old is gone, and the new has come. Who, and who were we before we met Jesus? We were selfish like Jacob. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Swindlers sounds a lot like what Jacob does. Verse 11, he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So whoever you were before meeting Jesus, you were unworthy of entrance into his kingdom, into salvation, into redemption, into forgiveness, into the restoration he offers. But that is not you anymore. You were washed. You were made right with God. You were made his special possession by Jesus and by the Spirit. And God says to Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. And that's his commission to live for God's purposes, returning to the original purpose he gave Adam and Eve, the original purpose he told Noah after they got off the ark, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth as people that are representing me. And now he says to Jacob, you've come back home, you've come back to a right relationship with me, and now be fruitful and multiply, send your family out. And Jesus tells us, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching people to follow me. And it's because of what Jesus has done in our lives that we're able to be given this mission. It starts with baptism. Jesus has baptized people into the new identity. Baptized people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Baptized people into their new name. You're no longer defined by who you once were. You're now defined by what God says about you and your relationship to Him. It's because we're no longer selfish Jacobs, but Israels who know we're dependent on God's grace that we're able to be sent on a mission. And mission always starts with knowing who we are. And after this, Jacob sets up a pillar to memorialize the moment, and he journeys to reunite with his father. And from Bethel, 
It's kind of like this little itinerary. He's like at Shechem, goes to Bethel, and then he goes to Hebron where his father is that he hasn't seen in 20 years. 20 years. Can you imagine not seeing your dad or someone in your family for 20 years? And on the way, his wife Rachel goes into labor, gives birth to their, uh, their second son together, Benjamin, um, but she sadly dies in childbirth, and then he buries her on the way. And then we're told another tragic event in verse 22. It says, tells us that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with Bilhah, which was the servant of Rachel, um, whom she gave to Jacob to have uh, children with her since at the time she couldn't. And this is like a power move by Reuben. He's trying to assert his authority um, as head in the family, um, a right that isn't uh, his at this point. And later in Genesis, you know, it might be seem like, why in the world was that sentence there? Well, later in Genesis, we have to wait you know, a lot of chapters later when Jacob's on his deathbed. Um, this act disqualifies him from being the head of the family. And we talked about how um, Simeon and Levi were also disqualified for their murderous um, anger in chapter 34. This tells us why Reuben's disqualified. It should have been Reuben, Simeon, Levi. And this is why Judah, his fourth son, becomes the tribe that the kings come from. So anyway, that's why it's important for Genesis and for Israel and for us because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And Jacob does reunite with his father. And at 180 years old, Isaac dies. And then Jacob and Esau also reunite to go and bury Isaac. And this journey to reunite with his father is... The details are tying up a bunch of stuff in, in Jacob's life and telling us things that we need to know from the past, things that are going to help us going into the future. And then Genesis 36, I'm not going to spend really hardly any time on this chapter. I'm just going to mention right now what it's all about. It's a big genealogy of Esau's family, Jacob's brother, telling us, okay, here's the descendants of Esau's family. Here's uh, their, their generations and kings that came from them and all this stuff and this is important for the original people reading it because Esau is Jacob's brother. Jacob gets renamed to Israel so Israel is a nation living in the promised land and later on Esau grows and his family grows into a nation called Edom. They're on the other side of the, um, the Dead Sea well more, more south, um, south and east of Israel but they actually get into a decent amount of conflict. Jacob and Esau were in conflict a lot and Israel and Edom, nations that come from them, are in conflict a lot. And so, uh, but an important detail we're told here is, like Lot, if you remember Abraham's nephew Lot, Lot left the promised land because he's like, hey, there's not room for us here, so I'm going to choose the place on the other side of the river. Um, and the same happens here. Esau, we're told in the first verses of chapter 36, Esau left because he's like, there's not enough room here. We're too, we have too many possessions. I'm going to move over there which is an important note because it's like, well, Jacob didn't push his family out so he could have the land, and Abraham didn't push his family out so he could have the land, but it's give, being given to them by God. God's gifting it to them. They're not pushing people out and saying, no, this isn't mine, and so it shows that God's the one at work. And the big question we're answering is how do selfish people become a blessing to the world? And the answer we see from Jacob's life is this. They stop relying on themselves and start relying on God. How do selfish people become a blessing to the world? They stop relying on themselves and start relying on God. And when you th read through the Bible from the first page to the last page, God has a purpose for us. His he has a mission for humanity. His commands, His instructions, His corrections, 
are given to us as pointers back to his original purpose, to reflect what he is like, to show and tell people um, what the good news about God, about who he truly is, um, to tell people that and show them it. And God is calling us to be ambassadors for his kingdom. And that's the vision of our church, that we would show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child, to be to return to being his ambassadors. And before we can ever do that, we have to come to this place of surrender. You may wonder, well, well why? Why can't I just get out there and, and get on with it? Well, it's because the life God calls us to live is only possible through the power he gives. The life God calls us to live is only possible through the power he gives. It's not possible apart from the power he's given us. Um, so every time you read something in the Bible, um, and it's God telling you to do something, God telling you not to do something, God saying this is what you're supposed to be about, it should be like, I cannot live that life apart from the power that you give me, God. And God's purposes can only be accomplished with God's power. And so we need to stop seeing ourselves as a source of blessing, as the source of power to be able to live the life God wants us to live and see Him as the source. So we depend on Him and rely on Him and trust in Him. And we need to rest in His might, His strength, His provision, His ability, and not our own. But even as we live for His purposes, as you go out on this mission, it's not like, okay, sweet, I'm perfect, and now I go out. But it's actually in the process of living for God's purposes, in the process of living for His mission, that we actually are being taught to rely on Him more and depend on Him more. I mean, when we went out today and we were trying to invite people to Christmas Eve services by going door to door, it's in the it's in the process of that that we're actually learning, wow, I can't really do this. I have no power to change another person's heart. I have no power over what they do with this. And so we have to say, I'm going to rely on you, God. It's only by you we can do this. So we, see, we leave here today, remember this truth. Know that God is more powerful than you. That might seem so obvious, but so often we live as if that's not true. So God is more powerful than you. God is bigger than you. He's stronger than you. He's more capable than you. He's more able than you. He's wiser than you. He has a, he's a better planner than you. And God is Lord over all things. And not a hair falls from your head without his permission. Um, and not a sparrow falls to the ground without his decree. Nothing has life except by his breath. God created all things. He sustains all things. No one can ever say, I believe in Jesus, apart from God's power. And God can bring life where there's death, freedom where there's bondage, righteousness where there's sin, and peace where there's chaos. And I can't do any of those things, which fully you know, supports the statement that God is more powerful than you. God is more powerful than me. God is more powerful than all of us. And the, the problem is that we often have trouble relying on and trusting in God's strength instead of our own. And Jacob had that struggle. And if we had our whiteboard, we could go back to all those reasons we listed. Here it is. If we had our whiteboard, the whiteboard in your mind, uh, why do we have such trouble asking for help? And we have all those apprehensions of, uh, why wouldn't we ask God for help when we know we need it, when we know we can't do this? And we have all those reasons. And Jacob struggled with this. And there's, it's interesting, there's been two times in Genesis that God has revealed himself as God Almighty. Does anybody remember the first one when he said, I'm God Almighty? Same statement. It was in Abraham's story when he comes to him and he says, this time next year, Abraham, your wife's going to be pregnant. And at this point, his wife's 90 years old. He's 99 years old. They've been trying for decades uh, and have the pregnancy test has come back negative every time. And so Abraham just falls on his face 
and laughs. And Sarah does the same thing. She falls on her face and laughs. And then God asks them, is anything too hard for me? And some of us struggle to trust God because we're like Abraham. And Abraham looked at himself and he thought, I can't do this. I'm not enough. My situation is too hard for God to overcome. There's no life in these loins to make a baby and there's none in Sarah. And so God, I'm just laughing at you. This, I look at myself and this is not possible. And the question God would ask us is, is anything too hard for me? Is anything beyond my power to change? Is anything beyond my power to make right or to, um, to make better? Maybe when, when you look at your life and what you've done, you think, there's no way God can use me. I'm damaged goods. I've done too much wrong. I've done too much sin. Or maybe too much sin has been done to me. And I just feel shame and I feel guilt and I feel regret over all those things. And there's no way God could do anything with me. And we may think, man, that's humble. But what we're really saying to God is, what I've done is more powerful than what you could ever do. You cannot overcome what I've done and all the things. You cannot change me to be a better person. And the good news is that God is more powerful than you. Nothing you've done is too hard for God to give, forgive. Um, nothing, no sin or addiction or habit or anything that's gripping onto your life is too hard for God to relieve you from. There's no hole that is too deep for God to lift us out of. And Abraham needed to learn that even though he isn't enough, God is enough. Now, on the other hand, some of, some of us struggle to trust God because we're like Jacob. Because Jacob doesn't look at himself and think, I'm not enough. Jacob looked at himself and said, I can do this. I am enough. I can handle this. And Jacob needed to learn, no, I really am not enough. But God is. And you may need to learn that too because Jacob needed to be convinced, oh, man, I'm really not in control. I'm really not big enough to handle my life. I'm really not big enough... Um, to take upon myself this blessing and promise God wants to do through me. And we need to learn that too. But you could be one of those, but there's this third option. Because maybe you have this really easy time believing, I know God's powerful, I know He's mighty, I know He's bigger and better than me, and I know that I can't do it. But you struggle to believe that He cares enough to do anything in your life. Sure, God's out there, He's big, He created this whole thing, but... My life is kind of insignificant. You know, the issues I'm facing, um, God doesn't really care about that kind of stuff. He's got bigger things to do. Sure, he's big, but is he near? Does he care? Maybe you feel that, I'm not deserving, or God's really not that interested. And when you look at Jacob, man, he is the furthest from deserving. Maybe not the furthest, but he is far from deserving. And yet God chose to, chose to be with Jacob to rescue him in his times of distress, to let him walk through these cities that really he kind of, his sons really kind of deserve the punishment um, of having these people retaliate, but he gets to experience God's power walking through these cities. And God used his power on Jacob's behalf, even though Jacob was totally unworthy of it. And that's good news for us because we're always unworthy and yet God is gracious. And so let's take a moment or make a list. We actually did something similar at the end of Jacob's life, or Abraham's life. Just take a moment on your bulletin. If you don't have one, you can grab one or write it wherever you can. You can write it on the back of the song sheet if you want to do that. Write down things that are worrying you, giving you stress right now. Things that where you just feel like this is out of my control. I'm like, not able to handle this. Write down those things where you feel beyond your ability. Things you're worrying about, things you're stressed about.
Does it feel out of your control or beyond your ability? Next question is, what keeps you from asking God for help? What keeps you from depending on God? And there's three statements that are the option. Write the one down that uh, makes, or you can write them all down and circle the one that works for you. You could be saying, God isn't big enough. I'm big enough, or God doesn't care. So God isn't big enough. I'm big enough. Or God doesn't care. So you could be saying, God isn't big enough to handle this. Maybe you think, God's not big enough to handle my past sins or my present problems, and so i got to just do this myself. Maybe you're saying, I'm big enough to handle this. You think you're big enough to handle them on your own. Or maybe you're saying, God doesn't care enough to handle this. Maybe he's big enough, but maybe you're like, yeah, yeah he's big enough, but I don't believe he cares. You circle the one that hits you where you need, need help. And then somewhere on there, you know, over that, over the top of that, um, right? God is more powerful than me. That's what we learn. We don't, all these situations where we're like, I need to handle this myself. Um, God is more pow- powerful than you. And then we see in Jacob's life, you know, it was so undeserving. And yet God's caring for him. God's walking with him. The blessing that God wants to bring to the world through Jacob and his family um, is that his presence with us, that he's with us. His grace means he's with us, even though we don't deserve it. Um, and he's here to care for us. And it, and sometimes we can think, man, God, uh, I'm in this situation. I've been, man, I know I can't handle it. And I've been praying, and I believe God's big enough, but yet it's still not doing it. Um, and this week, Katie and I have been starting some new physical therapy with Hudson because he's he's struggling to, like, use one hand when he's on his stomach. So he's just sitting with two hands. And if he wants to grab something, he just like rolls around and instead of being like, oh, I'm going to grab this and play with it and hold myself with the, up the one hand. And so we have to do this physical therapy with him when we're trying to teach him like to strengthen him to be able to be on one arm and hold something in the other while he's on his stomach. And he wants, he hates it. He does not want to be a part of it. He cries and he fusses um, because he wants to stay where it's comfortable. He wants to stay with what he knows. He wants to be like, I can do it this way. I'm strong enough to do it this. And we're like, no, Hudson, you need to learn to use your one hand. Um, I, and I want you to be able to crawl someday. I mean, you know, crawl and walk. I don't want you to just be me carrying you around all the time. No. And so for this, <laughs> yeah, you just, you really are 180 big. pounds. <laughs> I, I kind of, I sometimes wonder if I lift him every day and throw him in the air, I'm always getting stronger as he's weighing more. So yeah. eventually, as an adult, I can just keep doing it, right? No, <laughs> but anyway, so we, because we want him to be able to, to be stronger, we sometimes have to put him through things that make him uncomfortable, that he doesn't like. And we don't rescue him from those things. And so God may be having him in a situation, like he did with Jacob when he was over with Laban. And it's like he didn't take him out of 
that difficult circumstance. But in that, he used that to teach Jacob, you need to depend on me, and you need to see me in these difficult circumstances. And often God is, I mean, always God is more interested in changing us than changing our circumstances. And so he may not be taking something from you because uh, he's saying, like, I want you to learn something in this. I want you to learn to depend on me and walk in uh, and honor me in this. So if we want to be a blessing to those around us, we need to rely on God's power. And God calls us to come back home to him, to walk with him. And, and through people who do that, God wants to bless the world with his presence. And as he sends you out, relying on his presence, in difficult circumstances, and good circumstances, um, you can be a light to the world. And he wants to call a world wandering from, from him back home. And we, in order to do that, we need him because the, God, the life that God calls us to live is only possible through the power that he, he gives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Jacob's life. It's just, when we look over these past uh, dozen chapters, it's evident that Jacob is only uh, called your son, um, part of your people because of your grace. And that he had a lot to learn. And I know I often feel like I have so much to learn. Um, and I'm so unworthy of what you've done. Um, and we all are. And so we're thankful for the example of Jacob and how you worked with him. And it gives us hope that you'll keep working with us, that you can overcome um, even the most deep-seated selfishness in us like Jacob had. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.